Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Welcome in this room, Center Court West. Welcome in Center Court East. Welcome at the Woodlands. Welcome online. However it is that you're here, we're really glad that you're here today. So we're going to start in on the second mini-series that we're doing uh, as we continue looking at um, the book of First Peter. Now, if you have uh, been following along and you're thinking sequentially, we're coming up about chapter 2, verse something. Let me explain to you what's going to go on. We're going to jump over a portion of kind of the middle of First Peter. We're going to save that portion for August, September, because I want to do a series particularly that's looking at five or six subjects right there. We're going to jump on over to First uh, Peter uh, 3 today. I've asked Adam McIntyre, our young adult pastor, to bring the first installment of this vibrant series, as we're calling it, learning how to live a vibrant faith uh, in a dark world. He's a gifted young preacher, and he has a very, very good word, a challenging word for us. So on all our campuses and venues, why don't we welcome Adam as he comes to preach to us now. Let's do that. Well, good morning and welcome. How are you guys doing? You doing all right? You look good. You look like you're doing all right. I am so excited to be here with you all this morning as we launch into this new series we, call, we are calling Vibrant, in which we're going to examine what it looks like to live a full, vibrant life in Christ in a world that is chaotic and dark and full of suffering. So we're going to learn today how we can live a life full of hope in a world that is just full of fear. Growing up, I went to a, a Baptist high school in Sugarland, Texas. Here's an interesting fact about Sugarland, if you didn't know. Uh, around the time that I went to high school there, Sugarland was ranked as the third safest city in all of America. All right? And so that's where I went to high school. And, and the school that I went to was a very wealthy school. And most of the students that went there came from incredibly wealthy families. So I went to a wealthy private high school in the third safest city in America. Uh, I essentially grew up in a bubble. There wasn't really a whole lot for me to be afraid of uh, growing up, but many of the teachers at my school were convinced that this safety was an illusion. They, uh, if there was one sentiment that they really impressed upon us as students, it was that Christianity in America is under attack. And now, my primary personality trait when I was in high school was apathy. Uh, but this idea that Christianity is under attack, that, that really caught my attention. Not because I was concerned, I wasn't even a Christian at the time, but because so many of my, of my teachers seemed genuinely concerned over these attacks. And anytime you hear the word attack, your ears perk up, you, you start paying attention. And so then the teachers would tell us about how in public schools they're teaching things now like evolution and Big Bang Theory and how they're not even allowed to read scripture with their class anymore. They're not allowed 
to pray with their students anymore. And they would tell us about how government buildings were taking down things like crosses and the Ten Commandments. I remember one teacher went on a 20-minute rant about how, about how our nation is doomed because the checkout clerk at Walmart wished her happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And so our teachers, they were generally, genuinely concerned, and so they were adamant that we learn how to defend our faith. They would tell us things like, as soon as you step out into the real world, as soon as you leave the third safest city in America and you go to college, you will be attacked for your faith. People will question you. People will harass you just because you're a Christian. And so every student had to take a class in apologetics. Now, apologetics, that means like the defense of your faith. So we all had to take a class on how to defend your faith. And I had to learn all of the different arguments, uh, the moral argument, teleological argument, ontological argument, uh, cosmological, Pascal's wager, all of those different arguments. We had to learn them, and we had to know them well because the teacher would randomly quiz us during class. Like sometimes he'd be right in the middle of a lecture and he would stop and he would point at someone and he would say, defend your faith. And that person would have to stand up and and choose one of the arguments. And then the teacher would play devil's advocate and just start pelting that student with questions. And you just have to do your best to survive the barrage of questions and not collapse into a ball and cry in front of the whole class. And so I don't know if I've ever been so stressed out in a class before. Every single day was just riddled with anxiety as I wondered, is today the day that he's going to point at me and say, defend your faith? Oh, I don't know. Uh, it, It was just, it was a terrifying experience. And I remember thinking, is this what it's like for Christians in real life? Like, when you get out into the real world, are you walking down the street or, or are you in the grocery store and someone stops you and says, hey, who are you? What are you? You a Christian? Defend your faith! And it's like, oh, uh, cosmological argument. Um, and it's been a little over a decade now since I've, I've been in that class, and in my experience at least, uh, that's not the case. Those kind of things never really happen. I've had many conversations about my faith with people who are not Christians, but almost all of those conversations have been very civilized, very respectful. Now, um, I have been made fun of before for being a Christian. I have been belittled for being a Christian. People scoff at me uh, for being a Christian. I remember one time I was uh, at this one social engagement, and a guy, he came up to me and he says, so what do you do? I said, oh, well, I, I, I work for a church. I work in ministry. And this was his response. He goes, why? That was it. That was his response. He couldn't believe that someone would actually do that for a living. Uh, and so I've experienced things like that before, but I can't say that I've ever truly suffered for the cause of Christ. I have never been hunted for my faith. I've never been tortured or imprisoned for my faith. I've never had to watch loved ones die. I myself have never been threatened with death for being a Christian. And my guess is that neither have you. And thank God, honestly, thank God, that is truly a blessing that that is not our reality. And my guess is that most Christians in America have never truly suffered for the cause of Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't experience difficulties for our faith. I've heard stories of friends who have been passed up for promotions or who haven't been hired for certain jobs because of the fact that they are Christians. I've heard stories of friends who were kicked out of, friend, who were kicked out of their social group as soon as they became a Christian, or even friends who were kicked out of their families for becoming Christian. 
people who are bullied for being Christians. And the shifting of cultural norms does make it more difficult to try to navigate through this world as we try our best to follow Christ or as we try our best to raise our children to follow Jesus. It's not easy to be a Christian in America. In fact, it's incredibly difficult. But all those examples are at most acts of discrimination. It's not true persecution. Again, that's not to say that we don't suffer. We live in a broken world. All of us are going to suffer at one point or another. You may be suffering, suffering right now, but most American Christians have never truly suffered for the cause of Christ. Yet, there is this narrative that is being passed around by politicians and news outlets and even other pastors that Christianity in America is under attack. And it has created this atmosphere of fear and hostility. It has created this us versus them mentality. We are braced for attack. We are ready to defend ourselves, to defend our faith. And now there's so many Christians who are professional victims. Victims who are so easily offended, yet have never truly suffered for the cause of Christ. Now the sobering reality is that the majority of the Christian church outside of America is under intense persecution. In 2015 alone, an estimated 7,100 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. They were martyred for their faith in Jesus. In North Korea right now, there is an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians who are suffering in labor camps where they are tortured daily for being Christians. Men, women, children are suffering all around the world for their faith, even to the point of death. Martyrs for the cause of Christ. And this idea is so foreign to us here. We hear the numbers, we read the statistics, and it just doesn't feel real to us. You and I are not going to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder, is today the day that I'm arrested for being a Christian? Is today the day that I'm going to die following Jesus? That's just not our reality. But that is the reality for a majority of the church, and those are our brothers and sisters who are suffering. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul says that we are one body. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So this, what we are doing right now, brothers and sisters gathered together in Spring, Texas, or in Woodland, Texas, or, or wherever you are, this church is the same as the church who is meeting secretly in houses throughout China. This church is the same as the church whose building was burnt to the ground in the middle of the night in Africa. This church is the same as the church whose members keep disappearing one by one, never to be seen or heard from again. We are the same family. We can't ignore the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must know their suffering. And there are so many lessons, that, lessons of faith that the free church can learn from the persecuted church. Lessons in what true, bold faith looks like, even in the face of violent persecution. Lessons in how to live a vibrant life of hope, not fear, regardless of the circumstances. Peter is going to teach us some of these lessons. So if you have your Bible, 
Go ahead and open up to 1 Peter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle. They would love to give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible. We love you. We want you to have that. That's our gift to you. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 13. We will read through verse 17. It'll also be up on the screen. Here we go. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So here, we find ourselves at the heart of Peter's letter. This is Peter teaching the church the art of Christian suffering, how to suffer well. So keep in mind that the church is under intense persecution at this point. You may recall a few weeks ago when Pastor Ken walked us through how the government of Rome was persecuting the early church. For hundreds of years, Christians were hunted legally by the state of Rome, dragged away from their families, imprisoned, or killed in excruciating fashion. Back then, to proclaim Christ as Lord, that was a threat to the throne of Caesar. It shook the very foundations of the empire. Now, here, it's a bumper sticker. But back then, to proclaim Jesus as Lord, that was an act of treason. So Peter is preparing the church for the persecution that is coming. But he's not simply preparing them to endure the persecution and suffering that's coming. This isn't a charge to shore up your defenses and weather the storm. No, Peter is teaching the church to find in persecution and suffering an opportunity for witness. For the Christian, suffering and persecution has become an opportunity to meet evil with good and to meet cursing with blessing. I mean, look again what he says in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Anytime I hear that phrase, be prepared to make a defense, I have flashbacks to when I was in high school. The defend your faith, uh, uh, and I, I start freaking out. But that, that's not what Peter is talking about here. Peter says, prepare to make a defense for the hope. Not the certainty, not the doctrine, not the logic the hope. This defense should look less like trying to win a debate and more like trying to share your testimony. We're not trying to beat anybody in an argument. We're trying to share our hope with them. That's the goal. Persecution has become an opportunity for witness, not an opportunity to defeat someone who's attacking you, not an opportunity to be offended or to cower in fear. Persecution is an opportunity for witness. In Nigeria, there is a man named Habila Adamu. And one day, a radical Islamist group known as Boko Haram burst into his house. And they told him, we had heard that you were a Christian. 
And so we've been looking for you so that we can kill you. And this was Habila's response. I have been looking for you too because I want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. Of course, this threw back his attackers. That's not what they were expecting when they're pointing a gun at somebody's face. And so they gave him multiple opportunities to recant his faith. Recant your faith and we'll let you live. And every single time, he just shared the gospel with them. He just kept sharing his hope. Well, eventually, they made Habila kneel and they shot him in the head. And then they left him for dead. But Habila didn't die. Habila somehow miraculously survived and miraculously was healed and was able to fully recover. And whenever the church heard this news, uh, and whenever people would ask the church, man, how does this make you guys feel? That's, this is incredible. He, he miraculously survived. His church said, um, the fact that he miraculously lived and that God healed him, that was, a, a, that was of great encouragement to us. But what encouraged us even more was Habila's hope and eagerness to share the gospel to his persecutors, even in the face of death. That is what truly encouraged the church. Habila himself, after, after he recovered, said this, I had a deep assurance that Jesus was in my heart. And even if I was to fall and die, I knew I was going straight to him. So for Habila, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win. He's hopeful no matter what. If he's alive, he gets to share Christ with someone. If he dies, then he gets to go to Christ. For this man, Christianity was not just a bunch of stories. It wasn't just a religion. Christ was his reality. When we see fear and death, he saw an opportunity. A hope like Habila's, is bright and attractive. And it's one of the most effective methods that we have of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we don't suffer persecution like that here in America. But even though we aren't persecuted like that, we still need to live in such a way that our hope in Jesus shines brightly. Because even here, hope is a very rare thing especially among Christians. I have seen more Christians declare that there's a war on Christmas because of a Starbucks cup than I have heard share their hope in Jesus. Where is the testimony in that? I see a lot of fear. I don't see a lot of hope. We are called to live in such a way that our hope demands an explanation. If you are a note taker or if there's one thing that you can remember from the sermon, let it be this, that we are to live in such a way that our hope demands an explanation. How do we do that? How do we live like that? Well, that's what Peter is instructing us on. If you go back to verse 13, Peter says, now who is there to harm you Who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, this is a rhetorical question, but it's also a command. Be zealous for what is good. This is so much more than just being a good person, not doing bad things, not breaking the law. This is not about being good. This is about doing good. 
And not just doing good sometimes, this is about being zealous for good, being deeply committed to do good at every single opportunity. So we have to ask ourselves a tough question. Where is the evidence in your life that you are zealous for what is good? When you are at work, are you looking for opportunities that you can bless and love and serve your coworkers, even the ones that you don't like, even the ones that you normally try to avoid, they just rub you the wrong way? Are you looking for opportunities to love and bless those people? Or um, if there's someone who has a different set of beliefs than you, of values than you, maybe political views, or maybe even someone that threatens your way of life, are you constantly looking for ways to bless them? Or are you looking for ways that you can put them in their place? I have seen more Christians lose their witness on Twitter or in Facebook battles. People claiming the name of Jesus while simultaneously calling someone that they've never met an idiot or much worse. And as soon as something like that happens, their hope is buried. Where is the evidence in your life that you are zealous for what is good? If you're having trouble finding that evidence, then odds are that your hope is hidden. Odds are um, that we need to rethink what has priority in our hearts. Peter says in verses 14 through 15 that in your hearts, choose to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. So Jesus, he is the reason for our hope right? Jesus is the foundation for our hope. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has triumphed over all evil, all sin, even death itself, so that anyone who repents and follows him as king, submits their lives to him, will receive forgiveness for their sins and will reign with him for all eternity. That is our hope. But this command that Peter is giving us here, to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, this is not just a one-time recognition of this truth. To honor him as holy means to set him apart from everything else in our hearts. He needs to be the priority of our hearts, the primary object of our affections. We need to set him over and above everything else that we care about. And this is a constant choice that we have to make. Again, it's not just a one-time choice. Every moment we have to choose to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. We have to choose to set him apart. We have to choose to obediently follow him. We have to choose to trust in his promises every moment. And this is difficult. It's really hard. It takes a lot of practice. It takes training. It takes a lot of prayer. Right? You practice by immersing yourself in scripture daily, reading scripture daily. That's how you practice, that's how you learn. And you practice with other brothers and sisters by being in discipleship relationships or by joining a grow group or by joining a serve team. And then pray constantly. Pray that God will soften your hearts towards those who you just really can't stand, towards your enemies, so that you can bless them when they curse you. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him apart in your hearts. That is how we are able to choose to love and not hate, to bless and not curse. That is how we are able to choose to hope and not be afraid. 
What steps are you taking to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, to set him apart? Do you immerse yourself in scripture? Are you practicing this daily with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you praying often for God to soften your heart towards those who are just really hard to love? When you do honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, and when you are zealous for good, that is when your hope shines in such a way that people demand an explanation. But Peter leaves us with a warning here in verses 15 and 16. He says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So basically, this is Peter commanding the church to live above reproach. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't give anyone ammo to slander you with. Don't give anyone a reason to doubt the truth that you're proclaiming. My wife and I, recently started the Whole30 diet, and it is, it is a nightmare. It is just the worst. I, I can't. I'm very hungry right now. Um, <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, the Whole30 diet is a 30-day diet where you are not allowed to eat any dairy, any sugar, any grains, any processed foods, any chemicals whatsoever. And as we all know, the best foods in the world have dairy and sugar and chemicals. Uh, so this has, been, this has been rough, but my wife and I had noticed that a lot of our family and friends had been doing this diet and they told us, yeah, this is an incredibly hard diet, but it's so worth it. I've lost weight. We feel so much better about life in general. I have like a much more positive outlook on life. I, I don't get sick nearly as often. And so, and, and we noticed that was true. We could see in them that they, they did look healthier. They looked like they had lost weight. They looked more positive, and, and they weren't really getting sick. And my wife and I thought, well, we're pretty unhealthy, so uh, <laughs> let's give this a shot. And so here we are. We're trying it. It's the worst. <laughs> now, if someone had come up to us and been like, you guys, you got to try Whole30. It's going to change your life. Trust me, you're going to lose weight. You're going to have such a positive outlook on life. You're rarely going to ever get sick. You're going to be so much healthier. But then later, we noticed that that same person had gained 30 pounds and was perpetually sick and was always negative about everything. Guess who would never try Whole30? I would never try it. You can preach the gospel all you want, but if your life doesn't reflect the hope of the truth that you're proclaiming, then no one's going to listen to a word that you have to say, especially those who doubt the validity of what you're saying. You can't proclaim that Jesus is Lord while simultaneously living a life ruled by fear. Jesus casts out fear. Jesus has defeated all evil and even death. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. You can't proclaim that Jesus is Lord while harboring bitterness and resentment or even hatred towards your enemy or towards an entire people group. You just can't. You can't proclaim that Jesus is Lord while ignoring the poor and the oppressed and the least of these. All of that, that's ammo for people to slander you with. That's what makes you a hypocrite. So it makes me a hypocrite. 
that gives people a reason to doubt the truth that we're proclaiming. Now, this is not to say that we have to be perfect, okay? We're going to mess up. That's inevitable. All of us will. We're going to mess up, and we're going to mess up often. But when we do, we should be the first to admit it. We should be the first to repent and to ask for forgiveness. We must be above reproach whenever we are displaying this hope that we have, whenever people question this hope that we possess. So be zealous for good. Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts and be above reproach. This is how we live in such a way that our hope demands an explanation. This is how the church is able to turn persecution into an opportunity for witness. And again, even though we don't experience that same type of persecution here in Spring, Texas, the community around us is desperate for this hope. So will we be agents of fear? Or will we display this radiant hope that is within us? Are we going to be victims of attack? Or are we going to stand victorious with our King Jesus? I want to close by not only praying for us, but I also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for the cause of Christ right now, right this moment our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So our prayers have a real, powerful, tangible effect on the world around us. Our prayers right now could give our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world the words to powerfully and boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to their persecutors. So we're going to pray right now for our brothers and sisters in chains. I'm going to read this prayer that was written specifically for the persecuted church. So if everyone would bow their heads and let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God of the suffering, Lord of all who stagger under the weight of the cross of Christ, hear us as we seek to stand with those persecuted for being Christians. Your cross-bearers in other lands are living reminders to us of the cost of discipleship. While we are at ease in Zion, they are in an exile of pain and isolation. While we are feasting on the good things around us, they keep an involuntary fast. While we assume a future of well-being, they don't know if they will be alive tomorrow. While we wear the cross as a piece of jewelry, they bear it as an invitation to abuse and exclusion, imprisonment, even death. Turn our hearts to them in prayer and in acts of compassion and justice. Thank you for breathing in them and in us the yearning for sharing one another's burdens. Loose their shackles and our complacency. Bind the forces of abuse and violence at work in their persecutors. Pray your mercy in us. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. 
Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hi, and welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group Director, and I'm here with Adam McIntyre, our Young Adults Pastor, and he just brought a message in the Vibrant series from 1 Peter. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so yes. much for having Yes, okay, me. what a great message. And actually, between the promo video we did about Lent uh, right. approaching and your very thought-provoking sermon, we have a range of questions that have come in okay. today, so I'm excited to ask them. Yeah. Um, so what we'll do is let's just start with the sermon, and okay. then we'll move into some questions that came in around Lent. Perfect. Okay, great. Um, okay, so this question actually came in three times, okay. basically the same question, though, in all different ways. Right. Um, from the sermon. Um, does it betray the gospel or mm -hmm. should Christians use uh, deadly force to destroy or to enter into violence um, to either defend ourselves or to defend other people? What, right. what does the Bible say about that? Uh, this is a, it's a very good question and it's a very tough question that has been debated since really the foundation of the church. You um, you can look at any number of theologians and they'll be split down the middle as far as um, whether or not we should practice nonviolence, pacifism um, in the face of our enemies or whether there are times when we are authorized to use deadly force in order to protect um, either ourselves or especially to protect families or to protect those who are suffering who, who can't protect themselves. And um, so you go back to the, the very early church, you go back to even the time of Jesus and his teachings are quite clear on how we're supposed to treat our enemies as far as we are called to love them um, and never repay evil for evil and pray for them when they persecute us. And um, you even see his disciples having trouble grasping this concept because they were expecting Messiah who was going to come and lead this violent revolt against the government of Rome. But Jesus came and was serving people. And whenever whenever Jesus was arrested and the guards were coming to take him away and Peter takes out a sword and cuts off the guard's ear, Peter said, or Jesus says, put your sword away. That's not how we do things anymore. And he heals the guard's ear. And Origen, one of the early church fathers, says the moment that Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. And so for the first few hundred years of the church's existence, Christians were not allowed to take part in the military. However, things began to change over time. Eventually, Constantine took over the church and or took over the uh, state of Rome. He became Caesar and he adopted Christianity as the official state or official religion of the state. And um, at that moment, you see feelings towards war and violence begin to change. And so then for the last 1700 years now, there's been a lot of debates as to whether or not Christians are allowed to. And you look at the Old Testament and you see God authorizing war. You see God, uh, in fact, commanding his followers to go to war. And so it's this really tough thing to figure out. And so um, that's really a big non-answer, essentially, as far as, uh, and, and I'm not going to have a good answer um, uh, or a satisfying answer. I, I can tell you, me personally, um, through a lot of heartache and, and a lot of studying, I have landed on the side of pacifism, of I myself, um, would try my best to not resort to violence. I know myself well enough to know that I'm not there yet. If someone broke into my house and threatened my wife, I know I would see white and I would probably lose control and defend her at any cost. It doesn't mean that I think I'm right to do that. Um, and, and it's hard too, because 
my little brother was in the military. He was in the army. He went to Afghanistan. Um, he told me about the horrors and the things that he saw there and, and how rough it was. And, and I'm so proud of him that he did that. I really am. I'm so proud that he was, that he had the courage to do that, um, that he was willing to sacrifice himself for his loved ones here, for this country. That's something I'm very proud of. And so it's really hard to land on one side or another. And so I would encourage anyone who's wrestling with that question um, to really study it for themselves. Mm -hmm. There's so much written about that particular topic um, with so many different theologians landing on either side of it. Um, and so read it for yourself. Read the words of Jesus. Read the Old Testament. Read all about the early church um, and try your best to come up um, with your own thoughts, your own opinions on it. But sorry, good, that was a good. long non-answer there. No, it's there, great but. because it is one of those questions where it's not, it's not a black and white. Right, um, exactly. You know? It's very great. Okay, so uh, let's talk about um, just a couple of personal situations that okay. people are struggling with that sure. have come up through the questions. Um, one of those is um, a, a woman who wrote in who said that they have a friend at work okay. and um, they're a Christian, but sometimes there's things that um, this person does at work that negatively affects their employees and she fears that she might lose her job. Okay. Um, help her, how can she handle that? Because she sure. wants to give her hope. Right. Again, uh, that's, that's a tough situation. Um, Paul calls us to speak the truth in love. So this is not something where you just try to ignore it and hope that it goes away. Um, it, she will need to confront that person um, and, and speak honestly and truthfully towards her. Um, however, Pastor Dan uh, gave me some really wise words um, that... Um, Someone had told him once that when you do something like that, you first sit them down and ask, do you trust me? Do you trust that I want what's best for you? Do you trust that I love you? Um, and, uh, and then you ask them, you know, um, are you like, are you prepared to hear the truth? Like you basically warn them, like I'm about to, if you trust me, prepare yourself for what I'm about to say. And so you try to, um, let them know ahead of time, hey, I'm about to tell you something that might be kind of hard to hear. Um, and then you speak the truth to, to them as gently as you possibly can, but also as honestly um, as you can. And, and I found that these these conversations happen so much easier in the context of a relationship. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Of just building the relationship, um, yeah. whether it's coffee or lunch or something outside of the office where you right. can get to really know someone and Absolutely. have a real conversation exactly. to be able to speak that yeah. way. You have to, to earn the right to, yeah, to, to speak, speak into, into that. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, you can't just go up to someone that you don't yeah. know. They're not going to listen to you. They're not gonna, they don't care what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Show uh, them that you love them first. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. But that person knows you. And if they know that you love them and mm -hmm. that they trust you, then they're much more willing to listen to what you have to say because uh, they know that it's coming from a place of, um, place of love and a place of honest concern for that person. It's good. It's yeah. good. Okay, so another situation is... Um, Someone who has a spouse that's a non-believer okay. um, and just feeling like there's, there's constantly strife, there's constantly um, arguments and having to remain calm, having to remain cool. Um, what are the right words and the right actions in that situation to help lead a non-believing spouse to Christ? Again, that's an incredibly <laughs> tough situation. Um, First Peter actually talks about that very subject, uh, just a few verses earlier than what we uh, discussed today. In 1 Peter 3, 1, he says, Likewise, wives, 
be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So in this situation, there might not necessarily be the perfect words to say um, that would allow him to see Christ. The, the best thing to do would be to live in such a way, again, like we talked about earlier, that your hope shines through, um, to live um, in a way, she basically needs to live as Christ towards him. She needs to serve him and love him um, the same way that Jesus serves and loves us. She needs to be the hands and feet of Jesus to him. That would be the best way mm -hmm. that he would come to know Christ. And it's difficult because it could take time. Uh, it could take a lot of time. And in doing something like that, you are suffering in moments like that. Um, and even to an extent, you're suffering for the cause of Christ because you are having to serve and love someone um, who might not necessarily know what you're doing, respect what you're doing, care what you're doing. Um, and so you're having to sacrifice of yourself uh, in order to display Christ to somebody else. And that can be an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and that's why it's so important that you rely on prayer and on scripture and on other community. I, I would mm -hmm. definitely encourage her, make sure to get in community uh, with other brothers and sisters. Since her husband's not a Christian, she needs to be surrounded outside of her home with brothers and sisters who can encourage her and who can give her advice and things like that. Good. Okay, so let's kind of shift our focus a little bit okay. to Lent. Um, and some questions came around about that. I believe, I think, whether you've been in church for a long time or new church, sometimes there's these words that come up that right. you're like, well, I've heard that word a lot, but I'm sure. not really sure. So kind of walk us through and just explain. Um, we have Ash Wednesday, we have Easter, we have Ascension after that. What, what, does, that, what does that even mean? Sure. Uh, so Ash Wednesday, uh, that marks the beginning of Lent. That's the day where we repent and cover ourselves in ashes. And what that is, is that reminds us of who we really are. Um, it reminds us of the fact that we are mortal creatures. We are finite. Um, we came from the dust and we will return to the dust. Um, and so we repent of trying, of pretending to be anything other than what we are. Because so often we act like we are not mortal and we act like we don't need God. We act like we don't need salvation, that we don't need the resurrection. And so this moment, Ash Wednesday, it's a moment where we repent of that. Uh, and it also helps to illuminate what Jesus has done for us, the fact that we do have the resurrection, even though really we're just ash, mm. we're, we're dust that's going to return to dust, but we have the resurrection because of the victory of Christ so that day. is meant to remind us of that. It's also the beginning of Lent. And so with Lent, that marks a time where you intentionally give up, you intentionally sacrifice or fast from something, um, and that something should be um, whatever it is in your life that distracts you from your relationship with Jesus. Um, and so you take a step back, look at your life, figure out, okay, what is it that really consumes my time, that consumes my thoughts, um, that consumes my affections, um, and particularly, what is it in my life that takes me away from Jesus? Um, and so uh, whatever that thing is, um, that is probably a good indication that that's something you should give up for Lent so that during that time period where you're remembering who you are, you are also able to focus uh, more intently on your relationship. Right. So you actually, Jesus. you fill that space right. with whether it's reading your Bible more or exactly. praying more or... Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So for me, internet is a huge one. Me too. Man, it, it consumes so much Facebook's of my time. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's so tough and it's so hard to do. <laughs> but then you find yourself twiddling your thumbs like, okay, I'm not on the internet. What do I do? Well, that's the time where you 
spend with Jesus, where you read scripture, you pray, you read books from theologians, and you learn, you grow in your relationship with Christ. Um, and so then uh, Ascension, Ascension Day, uh, so that's... So wait, Lent is between Ash Wednesday right, sorry, and Easter, and Easter right? right? And then, so, we, then we celebrate Easter. Right, and so okay. Easter... Uh, so there's Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion. There's Holy Saturday, mm -hmm. um, his descension uh, into hell. And then there's Resurrection Sunday, mm -hmm. the day that he resurrected from the grave, the day that marks his victory. Mm -hmm. And so that's Easter Sunday. Um, and then after that, uh, we have Ascension Day. And so Ascension um, is, you can find that in Acts 2. And that is um, the moment of Pentecost where Jesus ascends to heaven, but then the Holy Spirit descends upon all of his people. That's the moment where you see, it's almost like a huge crazy party breaks mm -hmm. out and all of the people start speaking in tongues and all that crazy uh, stuff starts happening. Um, but that's, that was Jesus fulfilling his promise that I'm not going to leave you here as orphans. Um, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Now all of you um, who repent, who follow me, you will be given this gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm with you always. My spirit is with you always. And so that's, that's what Ascension is all about. Yeah. This is a really sweet time for the church Absolutely. every year. Um, yes, yeah, so I just encourage you to, um, you know, try some, try it this year with Lent. Try Absolutely. to give something up and um, draw closer. Well, thank you for your message today, and yeah. um, uh, it's very thought provoking and challenging as well. So thank you, Adam, yeah, and thank you. you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org/postscript.